0: battle lines drawn in the debt ceiling debate.
1: I will protect Social Security and Medicare. Yeah. Guaranteed.
0: President Biden unveils his proposed budget, a likely preview of his re-election priorities.
2: We need to shrink Washington and grow America. His budget would do the opposite.
0: As a powerful wing of the House GOP issues its new demands ahead of the debt ceiling deadline, Plus, we will never ever surrender to the woke mob. Top Republican presidential contenders make their pitches in a critical state. Next.
2: This is Washington Week.
0: Good evening and welcome to Washington Week. I'm Amna Navaz. Early battle lines are emerging between Democrats and Republicans, as the deadline to raise the debt ceiling looms. In a speech in Philadelphia, President Biden unveiled his proposed spending plan for the next fiscal year, while previewing his priorities heading into the 2024 election cycle. $6.8 6.8 trillion dollar budget would increase military spending and a wide range of new social programs. It also aims to reduce future budget deficits by nearly 3 trillion dollars over the next decade through savings and tax increases on corporations and the very wealthiest Americans, and it funds Medicare by taxing households earning over $400,000. The president issued this challenge to Speaker Kevin McCarthy.
1: I'm ready to meet with the speaker anytime, tomorrow, if he has his budget, lay it down, tell me what you want to do, I'll show you what I want to do, see what we can agree on, we don't agree on, let's see what we, we vote on.
0: But the House Freedom Caucus, a critical voting bloc Speaker McCarthy needs, announced what they argue are necessary rollbacks to government spending. The only thing that is responsible is for government to actually tighten its belt. Inflation is caused by massive overspending by the federal government. The only way for America to grow is for Washington to shrink. Among their demands, ending the president's student loan forgiveness program, tougher work requirements for welfare recipients, taking back billions in unspent COVID 19 funds, money for IRS, for tax enforcement, and from climate change spending, and a near freeze on discretionary spending for 10 years. Joining me to discuss this and more, Peter Baker, Chief White House Correspondent for the New York Times, Laura Barone Lopez, White House Correspondent for the PBS NewsHour, and Leanne Caldwell, Co author of the Washington Post's Early 202 and anchor for Washington Post Live. Welcome to you all. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So let's just start with this fact, Laura, that a budget is a statement of values. It is a wish list, right? But what does this particular budget from President Biden tell us about his priorities and also how the White House sees their position, their leverage right now.
2: So as you said, Amna, this is a big wish list from the President. He is trying to show to the American public, what he wants to get done if they reelect him, and if they potentially uh, reelect Democrats to majorities in the House and keep them in the majority in the Senate, and so that includes, you know, big asks that he had already made in the first two years about universal pre-K, you know, free college tuition, um, also trying to re- extend the child tax credit again, uh, and he is also, though, you know, doing some things on more spending on defense, more spending at the border. They asked for more on that too, because of course he's trying to protect himself against attacks from the GOP on those two issues. Uh, But, you know, that, all of that being said, the president right now is trying to show the public that this is what he wants to do if he's reelected, and you know he thinks that Democrats can run on all of these issues, and that the public sentiment is on his side.
0: Peter, that message on on deficit reduction, in particular, that was a headline coming out of the White House. That struck me because that has been a core Republican message. Yeah. Why is the White House leading and leaning into that so much right now?
1: Yeah, I think they're trying to basically outflank the Republicans, right? Because remember, Republicans didn't care too much about deficit spending when Trump was in office and rolling up seven trillion dollars worth of new debt, but they care about it when the Democrats in the White House, and it's a good issue for them because it goes to their core constituency, and it kind of unites them at a time where they're divided, right, between the Trumpers and the non-Trumpers. But what President Biden is trying to do here is, fine, okay, I'll meet you there. I'll reduce the deficit, but I'm going to do it my way by taxing the rich. And in effect, he's trying to kind of reclaim, in a way, his more centrist persona, I think, where he's speaking to the values of middle Americans rather than necessarily just the progressives by talking about the deficits. And in recent weeks, uh, talking about the D.C. crime bill, which he said was too extreme for him to Mm -hmm. to soften penalties, and the immigration at the border, talking about how to toughen uh, the enforcement down there.
0: Leanne, when you look at the proposals from that House Freedom Caucus, Mm -hmm. that is a wing of the party. That almost cost Kevin McCarthy his speakership. Have we heard from him on what he thinks about these proposals? Well, it's actually really
3: interesting that the Freedom Caucus came out with their proposals today. And the reason is is because they are the first ones to come out with something concrete among House Republicans. And so they are laying their stakes of where they stand and what they want earlier than anyone else, trying to move the conversation and the debate toward them. Meanwhile, what's also simultaneously happening and has been happening for a few weeks now is the Republican whip, Tom Emmer, the number three in the House of Representatives. He also obviously has to count the votes, get the votes of whatever comes through. He's been holding listening sessions with. Republicans and small groups to find out what they need, not only on the budget, but on the debt limit as well. And so while he's holding these listening sessions, trying to see what they can compromise on, the Freedom Caucus has come out with their demands. And so it just shows how difficult and tricky this is going to be for Speaker McCarthy.
0: Is this, Peter Moore? We talk a lot about whether Republicans and Democrats can come together on some kind of compromise on the budget. Is there a bigger challenge on whether just Republicans can come together Mm -hmm. on their own proposed budget?
1: that's exactly right, because they're not united as Leanne just talked about. I mean, they don't have a single core uh, belief here. And, 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 the, and the problem with what McCarthy has laid out in terms of what he wants to do to balance the budget in 10 years without touching Social Security, without touching Medicare, without touching defense spending, that's really hard to do. You really can't get there. People just don't remember how much of our uh, budget is spent. How much of our money is spent on those three core things and on interest debts, which you cannot reduce? So what are you going to do? You cut. Our analysts looked at it and said you have to cut seventy percent of everything else. Right?
0: Seventy percent. of what's left from discretion. Of
1: everything else: veterans care, transportation, education, all the other things the government does would have to be scaled back dramatically, and they haven't explained how they want to do that.
3: And one other thing: the thing that McCarthy did say, because I didn't answer your question, <laughs> is that, <laughs> thank you for coming back to that. By the way. <laughs> that, um, the budget, the Republican budget is supposed to, was supposed to be out April 15th. That's yeah. what leadership told me several weeks ago. And McCarthy now says that that's going to be delayed probably a few weeks until May. And that is a challenge for them, not only for timing, but also it's going to be delayed in large part because they need to come to an agreement.
2: And so, that that gives the president essentially, you know, ammunition to go after them by saying, look, I've put out my budget, I've put out my priorities just today. We heard Shalonda Young, the head of the Office of Management and Budget, out there talking to reporters saying we're waiting for them to say what they are going to prioritize, how they're going to effectively Issue these cuts, uh, if they are going to stick to their promise, which McCarthy has said, we are not going to touch Social Security and Medicare. Mm-hmm. And then after that, they will start having conversations and see where they can go from there.
0: I mean, this is a tough question, but the president has said over and over again, I am ready to meet with Speaker McCarthy when they have a budget. Given where we are now, seeing the president's budget, seeing the opening volley from the House Freedom Caucus, which will certainly tie Speaker McCarthy's hands in some way, what does that first conversation even look like? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, they've had somewhat of that conversation (laughs) already, right? But no, it's going to be difficult because I'm sure that President Biden is going to be asking over and over again, well, do you have the votes? If you ultimately agree to something with me, Mm -hmm. is the rest of your conference going to vote for it? And ultimately, Democrats may have to come over and provide the remaining votes because when we get to the debt ceiling conversation, which is what this is ultimately all about, and whether or not the country goes over the fiscal cliff and defaults on its debts, there are a number of Republicans that don't want to vote for anything, whether it's a clean debt ceiling increase or anything to fund the government. So um, that's going to be hard for McCarthy to get those votes.
0: Leah, when you look at the timeline, this—I mean—looking ahead to that debt ceiling debate, we know there is a. Hard date coming in summer when they're going to have to raise that debt ceiling. I will tell you, senior Republicans insist to me over and over again we are not going to go over that fiscal cliff. They will avoid that. Is that what you're hearing too? Yeah, that's what Republicans say. That's what Kevin McCarthy has
3: said. That's what most Republicans say, I should say. Um, But how they get there is the hard part, and that's what's going to be most difficult. Um, It's going to come, I mean, President Biden wants to separate these two issues of the debt limit and government funding. House Republicans do not. And that's where the challenge is. If you can't even agree on what you're going to vote on or the contours of it, it makes it very, very difficult. And then, of course, you have the Senate, too. There, I will say, though, there is a little bit of a realization among some in the more far-right faction of the party who is realizing that they're not going to get everything that they want. Um, But that's not all of them. And it's going to take a lot of education
0: and a lot of work from Republican leadership to get more people on board. Certainly something we are going to follow very closely in the weeks ahead. Meanwhile, we should say Republican 2024 hopefuls this week set their sights on the key state of Iowa. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has yet to officially enter the race, but he did make his first stop to Iowa to test run his message.
1: We say very clearly in the state of Florida, we will never ever surrender to the woke mob. Our state is where woke goes to die.
0: Former President Donald Trump will visit Iowa on Monday, where his support has lagged. A New Des Moines Register MediaCom Iowa poll today shows the percentage of Iowa Republicans who say they would definitely vote for Trump if he were the nominee has plummeted more than 20 points since June of 2021. Peter, those numbers, when you look at them, it was 69 percent of Iowa Republicans in June 2021. Now it's 47% of Iowa Republicans. It's still pretty strong, right? right? But what does that number say to you at this stage of the game?
1: Well, it says that there's a weakness there, and he knows that, right. That's why he's getting out there now. He hasn't done very much since he announced his candidacy for a second term. and he's, he's watching DeSantis breathing down his neck. DeSantis hasn't announced a thing and he's already a, a, you know a pretty strong competitor. Now, Donald Trump has the advantage of numbers, right? He doesn't need 50% if there are. Eight, nine, ten other candidates out there. We saw that in 2016. He had 16 other candidates. He won with a plurality of the votes in these early primaries. That's all you need. So he's counting on people getting in. In fact, he said that the more the merrier, because he's trying to lure them in, because he knows there's a ceiling, right? There's a certain number of Republicans who are just not going to vote for him, and they're really tired of him looking for somebody else. And that's a real problem for him. And then, of course, you add the risk of indictment, which now seems to be looming from multiple sources, who nobody knows how that's going to affect things. So it's a pretty volatile moment.
0: When you look at those numbers, you dig down into the latest polls. There, they have favorability ratings for many of the candidates. Leanne. Trump's favorability is still among the highest among Republicans. There, he's on par with Ron DeSantis. He's way ahead of Nikki Haley Mm -hmm. and Mike Pence. How do you look at the field right now? What are you hearing?
3: Um, The field seems to be Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis uh, in that lane of the party, kind of the Trump far right, you know, the MAGA Republican. Which Ron DeSantis is trying to peel off that base. Um, and then you kinda of have everyone else who's <laughs> gonna be fighting for votes. But I will say it's really, really early. Every single election cycle there's always a front runner very early on, and then that front runner very rarely um, becomes the nominee. So I that's will
1: President Scott Walker. <laughs> right? Exactly. Or Rand you know. Paul or any of those right.
3: Or... I I you well. know, Walker jumped in the race. I had in twenty fifteen I had a baby, I came off my maternity <laughs> leave and he was gone out of the race. So that's <laughs> That's how.
0: And that's, that's how we mark time, too. Right, exactly. <laughs>
2: exactly.
3: So, you know, I just think that um, it, it's the base that you ha- need to win a primary, and if any of these other candidates, Nikki Haley or the other ones that are going to jump in, if they can cut into that, there's the 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 concern among some Republicans, which you know we've talked about before, is that too many
0: candidates mm-hmm. um, will dilute the field. We we'll hear see. this again and again, Laura. Right. Everyone. Well, not everyone. There are a number of. Republican who's maybe want to run themselves, uh, who say, you know what, a crowded field is is going to hurt us again. It will clear the way for Mr. Trump to win with a plurality instead of a majority. That's why Larry Hogan decided not to run. That was his stated reason. But I guess at this stage, when when you look at where folks are, uh, there was the never-Trump wing, right? There's now the kind of thank-you-next wing, but is there an organized anti-Trump Effort of any kind for people who don't believe he should be the Republican nominee?
2: The short answer, no. I mean, there there are a number of Republicans, as Leanne and Peter said, that are trying to say, look, it's time to move on. I mean, that's the whole reason that you see Ron DeSantis and the Nikki Haleys of the World running. But when it comes down to um, their policies and when it comes down to their core messages, they are nearly identical to the former president. And so There may be a conversation about are they done with the man himself, is the party done with the man himself? Potentially, Um, although there is no one that is forcefully uh, trying to distance themselves from Trump. Uh, Ron DeSantis is running on a platform of anti-transgender, anti-LGBTQ legislation. Florida just introduced uh, a six-week abortion ban that if a woman, that gives an exemption for rape and incest, but the woman has to provide proof Official proof, documentation of that, and Ron DeSantis has said that he supports it. I was just talking to a Republican strategist who, uh, in a swing state, who said that, yeah, that type of messaging and platform may work in a primary. Uh, it's not going to necessarily work in a general in these swing states
0: and I talked to both Larry Hogan and Asa Hutchinson this week and Chris Nunu has said the same thing the next nominee they say has to be someone who can broaden the appeal right who can broaden the republicans support beyond that maga base is there a moderate candidate that your republican sources say they would get behind eventually is there anyone who stands out to you that's the challenge. What candidate
3: can get through a Republican primary, but also win a general election? Okay. And that's the challenge that there is right now. I talked to a lot of Republicans on Capitol Hill. Um, everyone has different ideas. A lot, I will say, a lot of people do not w- or want someone other than Trump. So official Washington is also looking for something else. Even though there's, he still does have a lot of support among the base. You know, we 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 analyze this, and Trump endorsed over 160 people in the 2022 midterms, and uh, only tw- two dozen so far have endorsed him to mm-hmm. date. And so he does, you know, people are starting to look elsewhere who that person is. That is just the big question. What's
1: amazing, actually, is that there's we always talk about Trump lane and a non-Trump lane, but there's only a Trumpism lane, right, mm-hmm. to Laura's point. They're all running for the same candidates. They're all running as the same candidate, except the personality of the former president himself. I can be Trump. Without you know the baggage, that's what DeSantis' message is, right? If you like Trump, if you like his policies, if you liked the anti-woke culture war kind of thing, I'm your guy without the indictments, right? <laughs> I'm the guy, I'm the guy without January 6. I'm the guy who can move on and 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 take this next generation. And mm-hmm. if DeSantis gets it, age 44, I think, right? Mm-hmm. He's half the age of Biden. He yeah. can make a generational argument, but he's not running in a different lane than Trump. He's running in the same lane.
0: Interestingly, yeah. though, you don't see a ton of support. From other senior Republicans for Ron DeSantis either, right?
1: No, but I mean, you you talk about ASA, like for instance, ASA Hutchinson, very respected governor, former governor of Arkansas. He was on a, he was one of the impeachment managers for Bill Clinton. That's when he uh, came to fame. He's nowhere. Guys like him. Don't have an appeal because they don't have that visceral connection, right, with the core base. And the question is for people of the Bush wing of the party, for instance, are they willing to get behind people like DeSantis? Very interesting to see Jeb Bush, for instance, say that he thought DeSantis was doing a good job. Not an endorsement, he made clear, but he he said nice things about him.
2: Yeah, and another data point that just speaks to what we're talking about in terms of is the Republican Party beyond Trump himself versus Trumpism, is the whole conversation around January 6, and the fact that the Republican Party as a whole, I mean, the candidates that are potentially running. Do not call Trump out about January 6th. Do not confront him about the fact that he said the Constitution should be terminated. There are Republicans beyond just Marjorie Taylor Greene on the Hill that are saying, we want to take a trip to the jails to see January 6th defendants and essentially, you know, revise history on Mm -hmm. January 6th. So the party as a whole is just Essentially excusing Trump on January 6 and trying to revise history on it. You've
0: made my segue for me, which was I yes. want before <laughs> we go. I want to ask about the fact that we have seen a revision of history uh, unfold on Fox. Tucker Carlson, we know, got access to that security footage and has been kind of rewriting what happened on that day and, and, and uh, claiming that it was peaceful, falsely, on January 6. Look, we all know the role the media plays. We know the role FOX has played, in particular, in pushing the false claim that the 2020 election was stolen. And we know a lot of this as a result of the new filings from that Dominion Voting systems lawsuit. I just want to share one of those text messages that was revealed as part of those filings. This is from Tucker Carlson on January 4th, 2021, to a colleague talking about uh, former president, Trump, then President Trump, rather, saying, quote, we are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. I truly can't wait, followed by then saying, quote, I hate him passionately. Peter, knowing what we know now about these private, the private contempt for Mr. Trump, privately dismissing the election fraud claims while publicly pushing them, publicly supporting him, does any of this make a dent? in the Fox
1: base? Well, it's a good question, because basically what we've learned from this is how much Fox is afraid of their own viewership, right? And in some ways it's the same way with Trump. Trump is almost afraid of his own base to some extent, too. Why did he not brag about vaccines when he could have said, this is my biggest accomplishment? Because the base booed him at a rally. He became afraid of the own, of his own people. And that's where Fox is, too. They don't want to alienate their own viewership. We got hold of the New York Times, we got hold of an audio tape, this meeting that Fox executives had with some of the anchors after the Arizona call in 2020, in which they were all angsty about the fact that they were taking so much blowback. How can we make a call on a state without getting this blowback from our viewers? That's not what journalism is supposed to be, but they're so captive to that. And I think that's been the re- big revelation. Does it make a difference? I don't know. Most Fox viewers are not watching the Dominion lawsuit.
2: Laura, yeah. how do you see it? I Whether it makes a difference with the base, yeah, I don't think we really know yet. When I was at CPEC and I asked people there about what was coming out in Dominion? They either said, "Well, they excused it," and then said, "You know, I still believe Trump. I still believe the election was stolen." And you know, they they didn't necessarily say that they were going to stop watching Fox either. Um, I think that when we look at what Fox did and what so many of these hosts did, I mean, it's very clearly propaganda. That's what it is because they were deciding to uh, to. Prioritize their profit um, and what they thought would be profitable, which was telling their viewers what they wanted to hear versus what the actual facts were, and they were promoting conspiracy theories. And one example of that was also Rupert Murdoch in those filings we saw revealed that he wanted to help Jared Kushner. And so that was why he also revealed uh, president, well, then candidate Biden's uh, ads Ad buys ahead of when they were released because he said he wanted to help his friend. That's not a news organization.
0: Right. Leanne, I'll give you the last word. you got 30 seconds left. What's your take on this?
3: I mean, I just think that it really mm-hmm. it, it really shines a light in what is happening behind the scenes. I think that uh, looking at Fox, we as journalists look at it much differently now. Um, now it was clear that they knew, What the truth was, but they decided to ignore it. And I think that they should have a huge credibility issue on their hands. We will see where this goes. And, ultimately, I don't know, though, legally, if it's enough for uh, Dominion to win this
0: lawsuit. I'm not a lawyer. See where <laughs> this goes, thank you to mm-hmm. you all. That is Washington Week 4 tonight. Thank you so much to our panel for joining us and for sharing your reporting. Thanks to all of you for watching at home, and be sure to watch PBS News Weekend for the latest on the millions nationwide who are at risk of losing their Medicaid coverage as the COVID public health emergency winds down. I'm Amna Nawaz. Good night from Washington.